Welcome to Tempest, a history podcast. I'm Matt Smith. Now, for those of you who aren't currently lost in a haze of nostalgia, what you're listening to is the theme for SimCity. And if you aren't familiar with it, it's a simulation game where you have to build a city and lose hours of your life in the process. Now, when you start to play it, the easiest way to approach building a city is to do it on a grid. So you have your residential in one place, your commercial in another, and then somewhere away from all of that, but not too far, of course, the industrial section. Things don't always work this way in the real world, and a lot of cities are quite random, and were well established before city planning came along and decided that there needed to be a bit of order. So some of the famous grid cities like Washington, Chicago, and Barcelona all have a cross-thatch logic to the layout. And in Australia, you can add Melbourne to that list. The design is called the Hoddle Grid, and right in the middle of it runs the main street called Swanston Street. Swanston Street, no, main just major street, was named after Captain Swanston, who was one of the members of Batman's association that bought land here. Today, we don't think he's very important. It's just chances that he was a member of that, that group. It's really easy to find your way around a city that's laid out on the grid. And it's even better to give directions. Go two blocks north, take a left and go another block, is really easy to follow, and this is the way it is in the middle of Melbourne. People often speak about the surveyors being unimaginative, but it's just the logical way to do it. So you adjust the direction of the grid to suit the topography, but the form of the grid is, is rectangular. This is architectural historian Miles Lewis, and he's also a professor from the University of Melbourne. Uh, and looking down, uh, we see the bridge across just where the Falls Bridge used to be. Now to start this story, we need to go back almost 200 years to 1837. To the far north, Sydney was less than 50 years old, and it was decided at the mouth of the Yarra River it'd be a good place to build a new settlement. There's a reef across the Yarra which stopped the um, seawater coming up, and so the shipping could only get that far, and that was the cause of the foundation of Melbourne at this point. The old customs house, which is now the Immigration Museum, is on the site where everybody landed at Melbourne. So when they came to survey the grid, it began from roughly this point we're looking down on now. Survey the grid. In 1829, the Governor of New South Wales, Ralph Darling, laid out regulations that every settlement should try and follow, and that was to design itself as a grid. So when it was decided that Melbourne would be laid out, that was what the surveyor had to work with. His name is Robert Hoddle, and the grid design of the city is now known as Hoddle Grid. When the surveyors come, when Robert Hoddle comes with uh, Governor Burke, he adopts this site. He sets the grid out not north, south, east, west, as you might expect, but he sets it out more or less parallel with the river, which was a convenient thing to do. But otherwise, the assumption always was that you'd survey in a rectangular fashion. Laying a city out like a grid was hardly a new idea, but it's usually something that is done as a bit of an afterthought. Cities tend to grow from settlements and all the growth happens organically. And while there were some buildings in place, that hadn't quite happened yet in Melbourne. Sir Robert Hoddle and his team got there just in time. The surveyors all really aspired to rectangular grid. Sydney differs only because it was founded before these regulations became firm. Ironically, if you have a settlement founded by the government, as Sydney and Hobart, where nobody has any rights to the land, it becomes less regular because if you're the overseer of convicts or the chief of the marines, something of this sort, and the governor gives you permission to build, you don't worry about the boundaries or the land tenure. So Sydney was a mess before any freehold land was sold, and so was, so was Hobart. Whereas Melbourne, anybody buying land had to be sure of their boundaries, had to conform to the government regulations, therefore we were much more regular. When Hoddle first came to survey the site, it was already in use. Settlers had come over from Launceston in Tasmania and put up buildings with little regard for city structure or design. 
So the first order of business, these buildings had to go. First it was essentially an illegal settlement, so the buildings here, they had no rights. So when Hoddle surveyed the grid and the land was laid out, they had to vacate the land or buy the site they're on. And in fact, in every case, virtually, they vacated the land. So none of the buildings that were there survived Hoddle's survey. But the centre of the town remained in the same place, the cluster of buildings remained in the same place. One of the conditions of the first sale was you had to build a substantial brick building on the site. So unlike earlier Australian settlements, once the land was sold, suddenly substantial buildings began to grow up. Melbourne grew up like an instantaneous city as a result. Hoddle had strict guidelines that he needed to follow that told him exactly how big the blocks of land needed to be, how big the streets needed to be, and made sure everything was uniform, with a few exceptions here and there. Well, the angle of the grid, as I say it's not directly north, south, east, west, was designed to be parallel with the Yarra, and also it ran between Eastern Hill at one end and Batman's Hill the other, which is now almost destroyed where the old Spencer Street station was. So it was quite a sensible layout in those, those terms. As a sidebar, when they got rid of Batman's Hill in 1863 to make way for Spencer Street Railway Station, they found that it was honeycombed with wombat holes. It's not exactly clear what happened to those wombats, but we can kind of assume poor displaced wombats. All surveys from that time had 10 chain square blocks, and a chain is almost exactly 20 metres, and that divided into 20 uh, half-acre allotments, uh, and uh, a half-acre is what, about um, 0.4 of a hectare, something like that. Those regulations had been done under Governor Darling. He uh, left and was a new governor, Governor Burke, who had different ideas, and he wanted to have small streets. So Melbourne has the lanes, Flinders Lane, Little Collins Street and so on, which are not part of the New South Wales conception, which were put in at Governor Burke's insistence. Now they were to service the, the backs of buildings and if I remember correctly, are those half a chain in length? Uh, yes. The idea was that they service the backs, but because land was short and Melbourne boomed, very soon major buildings were being built on those streets, so they didn't function as they'd been intended. Now the other thing to say about this is Hoddle was concerned about that because the belief was that you needed good ventilation for health reasons when you dispelled stagnant air and so it's a very important consideration in planning. In the end Hoddle got his way in a sense but they kept the main streets the same width and they kept, put the lanes in as well and they just reduced the land in between to accommodate that compromise between the surveyor and the governor. After Governor Burke had left and Hoddle remained surveying he gradually changed the survey practice to get rid of those lanes. So in East Melbourne the lanes were widened out to become streets, so there's no longer a sense of the being lanes. He just, stage by stage, typical way a public servant resists instructions from above, actually turn the thing on its head. I think we should be grateful to Governor Burke then because the laneways in Melbourne are a great little feature of the landscape, I find. Yes, and no, there's nothing quite like that in Sydney, so it is an advantage. With the new city surveyed, Hoddle was given the task of auctioning off the parcels of land on the grid that he designed. With the commission he earned of £54, he brought two blocks of land himself. Buying a block of land came with conditions for its use. It's doubtful whether that condition was actually ever enforced. I don't think anybody forfeited that block for not building, but it didn't have to be stone. Brick, something that was fireproof, essentially had to be built. The other thing to remember is that only a small part was sold at first. So where we are now, near the original pool where the settlement was, where the first blocks were sold, only over the next 10 years or so was all of the grid filled out. So it gradually expanded, especially uphill towards Spring Street. Uh, that was quite remote. It was a forest area. People were warned not to go there. It was dangerous to be so far out of town. There was a, a depression in the early 1840s and land sales stopped and then they resumed again later in the 1840s and filled out the rest of the grid. Hoddle found out the hard way that the governor will always want his own input. In fact, the very next year, 1838, the new governor, George Gipps, insisted that Melbourne wouldn't have a public square in its boundary 
because things like that, they only encourage democracy. But the other thing to remember is that Hoddle kept aside land for public purposes. So the land where now the town hall is, the law courts and so on, all that was reserved from sale in this vision of what a city would be like later on. In some cases he had a particular building in mind for it, in other cases he just kept it, it seems, for public purposes and the use was decided later on. For example, I said we are now near the, the landing place and that's where the old customs house was, where the ships stopped in the era and the whole block was kept aside from sale where the customs house was, but then later on they divided that in half uh, with Market Street and half that block was sold off. Then they divided in the other direction and the part on Collins Street became the Western Markets Reserve and the other part remained the Customs House Reserve. And Market Street is the only major deviation to the Hoddle's grid. It sits there by itself to one side and doesn't conform at all to the layout. I can't help but think that on some level that must have really annoyed Hoddle. Later on, as Melbourne developed, the grid structure, while practical in the beginning, was soon found to have a few drawbacks. When you go outside the centre of town, the ordinary suburban blocks were laid out in a essentially square north-south-east-west grid. So when you travel up Swanton Street, it suddenly bends. When you travel up Elizabeth Street, it's not clear because it goes a bit further up to the Haymarket. But you get this characteristic bend in the streets because of the way the central part is suited to the topography and the surrounding land is just north, south, east, west for convenience. So while a couple of streets like Latrobe Street was added with some logic in mind, once outside the city grid, it turns like a dogleg like somebody finally decided to check a compass. Is it true that Elizabeth Street is built over a creek bed? Yes, it was quite a hefty creek and the lower parts of it were bridged and would flood, so people actually couldn't cross at Flinders Street or Collins Street in the early years. Very big flood, I think in the 1950s when the, it overflowed and the whole um, Elizabeth Street was full and cars were washed away and so on. Over the years Melbourne has changed, you would expect it to change, to accommodate additions like infrastructure, railways, public trams or new developers. The Hoddle grid itself is more or less intact, and while it's coped well with all these changes, it's hard to say whether Robert Hoddle would like how the city now looks. What hasn't worked often is the response of designers to the grid. The stronger the grid is, the harder it is to build a, say, a public space, like the old city square on the corner of Collins and Swanson Street didn't work because you felt it was a corner site, not part of the design of the city. Even now the town hall is on a corner site and doesn't work very well. To get a public building effective, you've got to have it sort of set back for a whole block length so you feel it was designed, uh, you know, originally. And even private designers have not responded either, I think, very well in Melbourne to the constraints of the grid. There was a strong belief in having a degree of uniformity, you know, uniform civic design. By the 1850s, there were proposals in Melbourne to actually buy back some of the land and sell it with conditions as to how you could build on it. If you think of London, whether there are great squares in Belgravia and so on, with huge terraces, because they're on leasehold from the Duke of Westminster or somebody like that, people thought Melbourne should be like that. You should have rows of terraces which are all designed as one and a degree of you know, politeness and uniformity. The time has long gone long past for that. So through the contribution of a good government regulation, a governor who likes lanes, and a surveyor who decided to align it to a river, Melbourne now has the hoddle grid. And close to 200 years later, it's still coping with things pretty well. As for Hoddle, he built a house for himself on the corner of Burke and Spencer Street. He tended his trees, he played organ and flute, and he translated Spanish, where he lived in retirement on the grid that now bears his name. Just as a bit of a final note, 
One of the early explorers in the area was named John Batman. And if he had his way, the city of Melbourne would now have the name of Batmania. Part of me can't help but think that that's a bit of a lost opportunity. My thanks to my guest today, Professor Miles Lewis. You've been listening to the History Podcast Tempest, and a version of this story also played on ABC Radio National Program by Design. Now, while the Romans are famous for using the grid system, it was actually the Greeks who first put it to use. So I asked my friend and historian, Rhiannon Evans, how Rome went about catching up. Rome itself was not initially laid out like this. Rome is famously built on seven hills and it has lots of twisty, turny little roads. So the grid system came later. And there's a kind of attempt to retrofit Rome so that it is more square. For example, Julius Caesar built his forum so that it was at right angles to the Roman forum. But in order to do that, he took advantage of the fact that during a lot of tumult in Rome, somebody had burnt down the Senate House, and that meant he could build a brand new Senate House in a slightly different position so that it was square onto his forum. So there you go. Being dictator means you get to have right angles. If you like this podcast, you can find it on iTunes and SoundCloud. The website is tempestpodcast.com. And there's also a Facebook page, or you can follow me on Twitter, at NightlightGuy. Encouraging tweets are appreciated. Please tell your friends about the podcast, and listen out for the next episode of Tempest. I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. <laughs>